Please take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Philemon in the New Testament. And Philemon is the last of the 13 epistles of Paul that we have in the New Testament. And so we're going to be reading from it again. It's the shortest of his epistles also. It's a personal letter to the man whose name is attached to it, Philemon. And let's read about this address from Paul to Philemon, beginning with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you, for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. In the summer of 1960, Abibi Bakila arrived with other members of the Ethiopian Olympic team in Rome. The Olympics were to begin shortly thereafter, and Bakila was going to represent his country in the marathon. This most difficult and grueling of competitions in the Olympics had only been run three times by Mr. Bakila. And when he took the road, the course, and began to run it, of all things, he ran it barefooted. In addition to that, he won the marathon, the gold medal. He was the first gold medalist, not only from Ethiopia in the Olympics, but also of all of Africa. No African had won a gold medal in any event. But Abibi Bakila bore that great honor. He became an instant folk hero, not just in his homeland, but all over the nation, uh, uh, the continent of Africa. And he was hailed as a great runner. The question immediately came to mind, as sports writers are to do, to keep people engaged in reading about certain topics as to whether Mr. Bakila would try again for a second gold medal in the Olympics in 1964, which were to be held in Tokyo. No one had ever won a gold medal in the marathon more than one time. For good reason, I might add. Six weeks before that event unfolded in 1964 in Tokyo, Mr. Bakila, who was slated to represent his country yet a second time in hopes of winning a second gold medal for his country, he had an attack of appendicitis, had his appendix removed, but lo and behold, he showed up to run the marathon in Tokyo. And yes, you guessed it, he won a second gold medal. There was even more speculation and hype as to whether he would try yet a third time to run. 
1968 in our neighboring Mexico, at Mexico City. And he said, I'm going to try. He began to train. A man who had followed his career very carefully as a sports writer by the name of Bud Greenspan, an American, took his wife with him en route to Tokyo by way of Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, in hopes of having a conversation with Bakila and his trainer coach. In conversation with the coach, who knew the condition of Bakila very well, Mr. Greenspan asked him, Do you think Abibi has a chance to win yet an unprecedented third gold medal in the marathon? The answer he received was a bit cryptic because the coach said simply, If he is well, he will win. That left Greenspan scratching his head, wondering, was there a secondary message that was being communicated? He would have to wait until the day the marathon was run. This 26-plus mile run was run. On that day, Abibi Bakila showed up again as an Olympian. And as he began to run, he was leading the pack at the 10-meter mark. He was running smoothly. There was no laboring in his gait as he ran. But at the 17th kilometer marker, he left the race never to re-enter it again. When he was quizzed after the race was over as to why he had left the race, his answer was simply, I've had a broken leg, a hairline fracture for three weeks now. Hence explaining the statement that was made to Mr. Greenspan. In 1969, Abibi Bakila had returned to his home, of course, in Ethiopia. He was in a car accident. His car collided with another car, and he was left paralyzed from the waist down. When he was able to give interviews to the press about what was going on in his mind and heart, in light of the seriousness of his injury, he simply said that God was with me in my victories. God will be with me in my injuries. And if God sees fit, He will allow me to walk again. He never walked again. Four years after the accident, at the age of 41, he died of a brain hemorrhage. But he was a man who refused to see himself or to behave as though he were a victim to his circumstances. He knew God personally. And he trusted God in the victories, but also in what one would call the defeat of life when he was injured. I'm sure there were moments when he asked God, Why? Why, Lord, did you let that have to me? Happened to me, but he did not let that become the predominant theme of his life. In that, he was like Paul. Last week, we looked at the challenge to be like Paul. We were referred to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, where Paul says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And so, Paul gives us an illustration in the introduction to the book that we looked at last week. 
The first thing he says about himself in verse 1, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Other places he writes in his epistles of being an ambassador in chains, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But he did not see himself. That was not a plea for self-pity. It was a badge of honor he wore because of his identification with the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he knew that God was leading him in his life and he was not in prison due to any kind of accident. If we were to look at the ninth verse of the book of Philemon, we read Paul's self-description as being, I am the aged one. He was, how old, we're not altogether sure. We don't have to have complete evidence to know what that would be. There's no record of it in his writing or other writings in the New Testament. But what we do know is he would have been probably in his 60s when we begin to calculate the time he would have come to Christ and the years intervening. So here was a man who was not only a prisoner of Christ Jesus in Roman prison, he was an imperial prisoner. That is, he would stand before Nero to speak for his event, offense against the Roman Empire. But he was an old man and he was alone most of the time and a single man. But he didn't let that get him down. He did not let that define him. In fact, he talks about being alone in his last epistle to Timothy, another one who was a spiritual child to him, just like Philemon was. And he said to him, at my first offense, none, none came to support me. All deserted me. And he says, may it not be held against them. Isn't that awesome to have that kind of viewpoint as if to say, don't feel sorry for me that I was left alone because I was visited by the Lord he goes on to say that the Lord stood by my side and He strengthened me. I was delivered from the lion's mouth. For all practical purposes, he thought I might end up in the Colosseum, thrown to the lions like so many before him had been thrown to the lions because of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, which was interpreted as lack of allegiance to the Roman Emperor Nero. But... He was a man who was not a victim. And we are called to be like Paul. I don't know about Abibi Bakila's relationship to the Apostle Paul in his reading of his Bible. My guess is he knew a lot about him. He probably understood what Paul said. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How was it that Paul avoided becoming a victim? I want to know. Do you want to know? Because we find ourselves not in the same difficulty in terms of the degree of difficulty which Paul was facing. But our difficulties are real. Even those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we have troubles. And Jesus speaks about that the night before he was betrayed. He said, in this world you will have troubles. But do not fear. I am with you. The Lord was with Bibi, Abibi, Bakila. He's with us just as surely as he was with Paul. How did Paul avoid remembering we're to imitate him? Well, the answer is very simple from this passage of Scripture. It's not the only method he used, but it was the entry point for all other methods he employed 
to be victorious instead of being a victor. It was through praying. He prayed. But what kind of praying? We need to be introduced to the sort of praying that he did because it's not necessarily the way in which we pray. His prayers were filled with thanksgiving. That stands out immediately in verse 4. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always making mention of you, singular, singular, you, Philemon, in my prayers. Paul says, I thank my God always. Now, this is what I would say to Paul. If I had an opportunity and lived and didn't know the rest of the story, I would say, really, Paul? Always? How can I give thanks always? Paul, I can give thanks when things are going well for me. And when things are maybe beginning to digress into difficulty, maybe I can muster up enough faith to give thanks. But when I'm in some sort of imprisonment like you were, Paul, how in the world were you able to do it? I want to know, and I hope you do too. There are four things I'm going to point out. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is a very healthy list for us to consider the way in which Paul dealt with this situation in prayer, which helped him to always give thanks, regardless of how dire the circumstances were. First of all, he recognized the sovereignty of God in all things in his life. What do I mean by the sovereignty of God? Well, I mean what the psalmist writes in Psalm 135, verse 6, where he says, The Lord does what He pleases in all things. And he went on to say, whether in heaven or on earth, this is David writing, whether in heaven or on earth, in the seas or in all the deeps, the Lord is everywhere. He's omnipresent and He's omniscient. He's all-knowing, but He's also all-powerful. His sovereignty extends to every nook and cranny of the created order. There's no place in the universe that you or I could find ourselves today without God being there and without God being able to rule over that situation in our lives. Notice that he calls Jesus twice in these seventh verses as the Lord. That's a word we're so glib with, that name of Jesus. It's the greatest name that Jesus has because it was that name which was conferred upon him when he was willing to take on the curse of God on the cross for our sins. And God says, because you endured that, my son, you will receive the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. The Lord name for Jesus is the all-encompassing name which has to do with His power and His sovereignty. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, We are to give thanks in everything, everything. These are the words of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul. For this is the will of God concerning you Thessalonican Christians and Coronadan Christians. It is my will that you give thanks in each and every circumstance in your life. Wow. What a challenge. And it's made possible because Paul understood God was his sovereign. 
Jesus was his king. And if you know Christ, he is equally your sovereign and your king. And what is going on in your life has not escaped his notice. He has allowed it, and he's allowed it to do something great in you, but also through you. We're going to look at that now as we move forward. God also was the primary focus of Paul's praying. Not only did Paul see him as the sovereign of everything in his life, but secondly, God, and it would stand to reason that God would be the primary focus instead of himself. Have you ever stopped to evaluate your prayer life? And in evaluating your prayer life, if you were to be honest, how much of your prayer life has to do with you? Asking God for things. Calling out to God in times of difficulty. Please, don't mishear what I'm saying. God wants us to call out to Him. In the book of Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things that you do not know. He wants that kind of relationship with us. In James chapter 4, verse 2, the Bible says, You do not have because you do not ask God. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So we are called upon the Lord to ask Him things. And as long as we don't ask selfishly, God will answer. And then Jesus teaches us. It resonates in our hearts in what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the model prayer where he says we are to pray to the Father like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord, please help us with our food. Help us with our victory over sin. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or transgressions, as we forgive those who transgress against us. So the Lord wants us to pray. But notice the way that Jesus begins the model prayer. How does He start with it? Can you all say it with me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants us to focus primarily upon Him in our praying. And when you read the prayers of Paul, and virtually every one of his letters gives us a beautiful pattern of the way he prayed, remembering once more, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He took Jesus as his exemplar, as his role model, when it came to everything in prayer, of course, was true for him. Paul writes in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything. Whoa, Lord, that's a heavy load. It's hard not to be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, note, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Many of you are familiar with those two verses. Maybe a smaller number of those who are familiar with it have taken the time to memorize it so that you can meditate on it, especially when you feel difficulty encroaching upon your peace. 
But have you ever stopped as you've meditated on those two verses? There's no promise that your prayer will be answered. Are you noticing that? But what does happen in that prayer is there's a shift of centrality of self to centrality of God. The word which is translated pray with prayer and petition. We know what a petition is. It's asking him for things. But the order there is correct. Prayer, it follows the order that Jesus teaches in the model prayer. The word prayer literally is the word praise is the idea. It's not a general word for prayer. It's the word for praise. We praise God and then we petition. And you and I, if we live in a position of praise to God, we're honoring Him. And I have discovered, as did Paul discover, and we all can discover, that when we praise the Lord, there's a lessening of the difficulty of the situation in which we find ourselves. And it's not some sort of placebo that has been given to us by religious folks about how to deal with our trouble. It's real. Why? Because in Psalm 22.3, the Bible says, The Lord is exalted on the praises of His people. And where the Lord is exalted, He's present. And where the Lord is present, the devil cannot have his way. And we are properly aligned with the Lord in submission to Him and to His sovereignty. Paul recognized the sovereignty of God in all things. We could stop there. If we started practicing that, everything else would fall into place. But fortunately, we're helped by the Word of God and by Paul himself and his example that God was the focal point of his praying. He asked for things from the Lord. He prayed for other people. But he was one who wanted the Lord to be magnified in his life. There's more than one person present today who knows the name John Piper. John Piper, I've got his letter here, which he wrote to his church family. He was the pastor at the time of the Bethlehem Baptist Church. It was the year 2006. Early in the year, he had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And many of you in this room have been diagnosed with some form of cancer. Do you remember when you got that news, what that was like? It was as if you were in a time warp. You thought, this couldn't be true. It took your breath away. It was a gut punch. Probably caused you to wonder, where is the Lord? Lord, why would you let this happen to me? It would be a natural, and it is a natural response. But I'd like to read a portion of the letter which John Piper at that time, he's now the pastor emeritus, he is one of the most widely influential evangelical pastors, spiritual leaders in the world, not just in the United States. This is what he says as he writes on behalf of his wife, Noel, and him. When people have a spouse who is diagnosed with cancer, it's a gut punch to the spouse, and sometimes more so than to the one who is suffering the disease. He writes, The God of peace is keeping our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are content. God is our hope. The best surgeon can have a bad day. An average surgeon can have a really good day. In the end, God decides. We will not have it any other way. 
He goes on to write, one good brother in Christ quoted John Newton to us. Do you know who John Newton was? He was the author of the most highly popular of all Christian hymns, Amazing Grace. We sang it in the previous worship service. He goes on to write, everything is needful, quoting John Newton, that God sends. Nothing can be needful that God withholds. This news has, of course, been good for me. The most dangerous thing in the world is the sin of self-reliance and the stupor of worldliness. The news of cancer has a wonderfully blasting effect on both. I thank God for that. The times with Christ in these days have been unusually sweet. God has designed this trial for my good and your good, talking to His church, who loved Him very much, still do. So I'm praying, Lord, for Your great glory, don't let me miss any of the sanctifying blessings that You have for me in this experience. Wow. We know He survived. I'm talking about Him in the present tense. God answered the prayers that he and his wife, Noel, offered to the Lord, to his extended family, and then his church family. It's not always the case, is it? Some people die of cancer. But God would have been faithful to the end of this man's life who died of cancer. Ravi Zacharias died earlier this year. It was a great loss to the universal body of Christ. A man named Tim Keller. Many of you have read his books. A great evangelical leader in the United States. Widely read. He has pancreatic cancer and is dealing with that. I mentioned about our own Bill Park, one of our treasures in his 90s. He has been diagnosed with liver cancer. We don't know what's going to happen to those who are still living. But we do know those who know Christ won't die when they die physically. Because the Bible is very clear. The words of Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies physically, will live forever. If you're in the condition of not knowing Christ, today could very well be the day of your salvation. I would not hesitate. Right now, I just say, Jesus, save me. Give me this life that you promised. It's a gift. I know it. I can't do anything to deserve it. I can't do anything to earn it. I give my life to you. Be my sovereign be my Lord. Paul recognized the sovereignty of God in all things. He also put God at the center of his praying. It was his primary focus. That is the focus on God. A third thing is that Paul knew God was using his imprisonment of all things to glorify himself. God was glorified in his imprisonment. You might ask, how does that work? Well, when writing to the Philippians, from the same place of imprisonment, he wrote letters to Philippians, he wrote letters to the Colossians, he wrote this letter to Philemon, and this is what he said about his imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Nothing excited the Apostle Paul more than to hear of the advancement of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel, people coming to faith, their lives being radically changed, forever changed, and benefited incredibly, not just in the afterlife, but in this life. 
went on to say, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul speaks of how he was in chains in Christ and the result was the gospel spread, even to the household of Caesar as he concludes that epistle to the Philippian church. In Romans 8, we read together about how God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things. I cannot help but believe when Paul found himself in prison writing this letter to Philemon, his mind would have drifted back to that thing which he wrote to the Roman church. All things. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Which raises a very, very important question for me. What is God's purpose for my life and for our lives? What is God's purpose for this church? It's very clearly delineated in the next verse that we be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'll piggyback on that. Hebrews 5.8, which says, Who learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus learned something about obedience. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. He was God and man, fully God, fully man. But He did not understand the impact of suffering as a result of living in a fallen world. And he learned it. That was part of what he suffered. In Hebrews 2.18, the Bible says that Jesus suffered just by being tempted. This is a holy God who had never been touched by sin. And the very presence of the enemy coming against him, Satan tempting him, not just in the wilderness, but at other times in his walk. He suffered that. And... We cannot be conformed to the image of Jesus apart from having some trouble in our lives. God uses us, uses it to glorify Himself. Now, how does that work exactly? The glorifying God in part. Well, let's listen to what Jesus says for a moment from John chapter 15, verse 8. He says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. How is God glorified? Remember, the Bible says in Isaiah 43, 7, God created us to glorify Him in our first birth and then in the second birth. He created us to glorify Him. How do we glorify Him? By bearing much fruit. Did the Apostle Paul bear fruit in his imprisonment? Well, of course he did. The gospel had gotten to Caesar's palace. How did that happen? Remember, Paul was an imperial prisoner. That is to say, he was one of the personal prisoners of Nero, the emperor. And such prisoners were allowed to be under house arrest. And Paul was in his first imprisonment. In his last imprisonment, he was in the dank dungeon of a prison that was reserved for those who were slated for beheading. And, but when he was there, he was guarded around the clock by 
representatives of the imperial guard. Maybe as many as four would have been there, maybe only one. But that, that soldier who was in the imperial guard would come and stand with him for maybe six hours at a time or eight hours at a time. Do you think Paul didn't tell him about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And many of those men came to know Christ. They took the gospel back to the palace of Caesar. And members of the royal household, maybe even relatives of Nero, if he had any, he tried to kill them all, if you study his personal history. But people came to faith. Fruit was born. Would that fruit have been born had Paul not been in prison? The answer is absolutely not. And so your prison, whatever form it may take, I mentioned last week types of prisons, a relationship, a body, a job, you name it. We all, to some level or another, probably if you are older than 25, you've had some prison that you found yourself in. And some of us are like in for life, we think. Whoa, dude. I don't think I want to have this going on from now on. But just like Paul tried to, he did petition. He just didn't try. He petitioned Jesus to take what he described as a thorn in his flesh, which probably was some sort of illness related to his eyes. The Lord Jesus said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul was satisfied. He didn't give up. He didn't see himself as a victim. He was a victor. Why? He recognized the sovereignty of God in his life. God was the focal point of his worship of him as he prayed. And he knew that God was using his imprisonment as a means whereby he could glorify God. The last thing, and this is my favorite really, is that he knew God loved him. How did he know God loved him? God spoke to him. Was he the first person in the history of God's dealing with God's people who knew that God loved him or her? Hardly. Jeremiah comes to mind immediately. God spoke to this young man. He's described by himself. I'm talking about Jeremiah. Describes himself as a youth. He was a young man. And God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I am appointing you a prophet. It just doesn't say a the prophet to the nations. What a title. And it scared Jeremiah. But it did at the same time confirm that he was loved by God. My favorite verse in the Bible, probably on God's love for us. It's so reassuring. It's found in the writings of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31.3, as he's writing about the new covenant that he's going to enter into with the nation of Israel, which extends to us as well. In Jeremiah 31.3, he says, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's the King James Version. The more modern versions don't put the yea in. Yea means yes. But when I think of yea, I think I love it. Hooray, God say. I've loved you with an everlasting love. God is not sort of middling when it comes to the love He has for us. He is all in in loving us as His children. Think about the way you love your child. Is anybody here who sometimes just wants to jump up and say hooray? 
Lord, forgiving me, my child or my children. Sometimes you want to say, kill them, Lord, kill them. We know that, but that's, in a ba- that's on a bad day, isn't it? <clears throat> Those days are few and far between. The older I get, when I think about my children, I think in very sentimental terms. I'm an old man. Sentimental old people do that. But I think about my grandchildren. I was thinking about my grandchildren either today or yesterday and just began to tear up thinking about them. How much I love them. How much I love my daughter and my son and my daughter-in-law. I love them. That's nothing compared to the love that God has for us. Paul understood this love. He writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as His children through Jesus Christ. This is the love of God for us. To put the icing on the cake, we read from Romans 8. I've touched on 28 29. The last two verses, Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nada. Nothing. And here again, Paul must have thought about that thing that he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul had such a rich relationship with the Lord, but his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is not something beyond our reach. Because the same Lord who saved this violent aggressor is the way he described himself. This blasphemer and persecutor. This is the way he described his life before Christ. He saved him. Do you any of you have quite that level of rebellion against God? Some of you may have more. But the good news is God's grace is offered to us in Christ if we recognize Jesus Christ as our Lord. And we trust Him completely with our lives. Not just sort of, not just sometimes, but yield our lives to Him. So Paul knew that God loved him. What's the outcome of Paul's gratitude? Well, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but I think I'm on steady, solid ground in doing it. I believe his emotional health was better. And the reason I say that is, this guy was full of joy. Everywhere you turn around, especially when he was in prison. That's really weird, isn't it? Being in prison and full of joy. But that was his life because of what the Lord had taught him. A man by the name of Hans Selye, who is a sociologist who spends his lifetime evaluating the trends among people. He's also bent in the direction of psychology, socio-psychological addressed to people's conditions. He said the two most negative contributing factors to despondency, to depression, are bitterness and the desire to wreak vengeance. They're like two sides of the same coin, aren't they? If you are holding a grudge against someone, you can forget about being satisfied in this life. You must let it go. You must release it. 
You must leave revenge to God. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's going to take up for you as his child if you know him. He's going to take up for you. But you're, you can stew in your bitterness and it will cook your goose and all the other people around you. The root of bitterness will do that in your life. Mr. Selya went on to note, and I don't know if he's a Christian, he, no mention of that, but this is what he went on to say. He said that gratitude is the most positive contributing factor to good emotional health. Gratitude. Now, we shouldn't just be grateful to God so we can have better emotional health, but it's a wonderful byproduct, isn't it? So that we're not down under the weight of such difficulty. We do well to keep in mind regularly what the Bible says in Ephesians 4.32. It says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, just as God in Christ showed compassion and forgiveness to you. Forgive one another. When your wife offends you, husband, if you know Christ or if you don't, what should you do? Be quick to forgive. When your husband offends you, wife, what are you to do? You're to forgive them. What about your children? Or what about your parents? Or what about your boss? Or what about your pastor? Or what about your teacher? What about your coach? What about your friends, so-called? What are we to do when we're offended? Anybody here get offended between today and last Sunday? I don't even want to think about it in my life. We do. We're so sensitive. But we need to know what God says. It is a dead end for you and me not to let go of any resentment in our lives. Be done with it. Our country is racked with bitterness and a heart for vengeance. Which raises a very important point. The only solution to what ails America is Jesus Christ. And we, the church, need to be like Christ. And if we're like Christ, we're going to help people know Him, first of all, by the way we are. But then not to be tight-lipped. And we're going to respond, and hopefully people will do what Peter anticipates and the Spirit of God does. Where in the book of 1 Peter 3, he says, Set apart Christ as Lord. Remember, we've talked about Lordship, Right? The sovereignty of Jesus. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart so that when people ask you about the hope that is in you, you will be ready to give a clear defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word defense is a poor word. Apologia is the word. The word apologetics comes from that. And that idea would be just because of the winsomeness of our lives. Is there anything about your way with people that would open a door for Jesus to get into their lives through you? Believe me, there are people who are looking in our community for such a demonstration of joy and hope and peace and love. And we must look for that ourselves. Not only was Paul's prayer full of thanksgiving, but also with people. This is written to an individual, read the letters of Paul. Read the last 
chapter of those letters. And invariably, there is a long list of people by name whom he calls by name. And he is talking about them and how he cares for them. It's been suggested by scholars of the New Testament that that list was, in effect, like a prayer list. He probably prayed for those people regularly. They came to mind, and the word which is translated, making mention of you in my prayers, the word mention really has to do with memory. When you are going through the day, even today, has the name of someone surged to the top of your mind today? Has it? More than one, maybe. Maybe several. What are we to do with those moments as Christians? We're to petition the Lord on their behalf. That's what we're to do. It's a reminder for us to pray for them. When I look out over the, this congregation, even as I am preaching and teaching, I will be praying for certain people who are here. And it's not because I think you're bad or whatever, but you've come to my mind. God's put you right in front of me. And I take great joy in being able to pray for you. Paul likely had a time he would set apart every day to be alone with the Lord. And a big part of his praying would be for individuals. He didn't just say, bless all the members of the church at Colossae. Philemon was a leader in that church. We know that. Colossae was a place where Paul had gone to plant a church, to start a church. He named one by one by one. Pastor Sam was teaching his Sunday school class today the last part of Colossians, he's, te- he's taught all the way through that book. And there's this list, a pretty long list of individuals' names. And they're kind of hard to pronounce, but they're people whom Paul prayed for. Would you like Paul to be praying for you? I sure would. But remember, the same Holy Spirit who dwelt in him, who empowered him to pray, is in you if you know Jesus Christ. And that same Spirit will give you the names He wants you to pray for. Remember what Samuel, the great prophet and judge of Israel, said, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He's talking about Israel. Do you know what the nation of Israel had just done when he said that? When he says, I'm going to pray for you, and far be it if I don't. I'll pay if I don't. They had just rejected Him as their judge. Look, God wants us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, just like Paul did, just like Philemon's lifestyle called him to pray for Philemon. What calls Paul to pray for Philemon? Well, let's look. Verse 5, Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus. Watch that. Lord Jesus. And toward all the saints. Remember the word saint is the common word or a common word which is used in the New Testament for those who know Jesus. It's not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Everything was always for God's sake in Paul. Christ's sake. Not for his own sake. Not so that he could put another feather in his cap as far as what he had accomplished, 
because he says to the Romans in the 15th chapter, I do not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. He goes on to say in verse 7, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. What caused Paul to pray for Philemon? His love for the Lord. The Bible talks about God's love for us, but also it talks about the need for us to respond. Do you know how we love God? In the book of... Let me think which book that is. Oh, John 14, 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that's a broad-spectrum kind of statement, isn't it? The commandments, of, well, that's a lot, right? But he helps us out in that same context. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. So, really, it boils down to loving one another. What was Philemon, Philemon doing? He was loving God, the Father, but also he was loving the saints, all the saints. We don't know how large the congregation was, that he was a part of. He was a leader in it. But he loved them all. This is for us too. We're to love all of our brothers in Christ in this body. That's impossible really to know everybody in the church. I work hard to try to know the people in our fellowship, but I miss it sometimes. But we know enough people. We should know more people. All the saints with an unconditional love. Not the world's love, which is evoked by the attractiveness in others, but an act of the will. This is the kind of love that we're called to, impartial love. How did Philemon show that love? Well, look again at verse 2. We looked at it last week. It says that greetings are to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Philemon hosted a church in his house. I talked last week about how... The elders are seeking the Lord about how we can start home church. We don't even know what we're going to call it. We don't, it doesn't matter what you call it, something. Right? You just want it to be biblical. Where people can gather together in smaller groups throughout the week for fellowship. The Bible talks about that being one of the criteria. Also, the apostles' teaching, that would be the New Testament. And by association, what we call the Old Testament, by prayers, and by the breaking of bread. We're seeking the Lord. Would you pray with us as pastors and elders? Would you as a church covenant with us to do that? We are seeking the Lord on this. We don't want to do it because it's a fad. We want to do it because God's leading us. And we don't want to do it to copy anybody else, to try to keep up with anybody else. Look, we're part of the entire body of Christ. We're happy when any part of the body of Christ is flourishing Not numerically necessarily, but spiritually. That's what we're pleased by if we have the right perspective. This church in the house of Philemon and Aphia, his wife, was a church which Paul had been used by God to start. This brought much joy and comfort to Paul. Look one more time before we finish at verse 7. This is worth reading again. For I have come to have how much joy? Much joy and comfort in your love for the Lord and for others. He didn't talk about Philemon's love toward him. He would have rejoiced in that, but mainly because of others. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. The word refreshed 
was a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe R&R for Roman soldiers. Many of you have been in the military. Many of you have seen combat. When that combat experience was over and you had rest and refreshment, was that awesome? Was it a relief? Of course it was. And the same sort of relief came to Paul in his imprisonment when he heard how the people, all the saints, had been refreshed by the hospitality, the love of God mediated to them through this man, Philemon. When he says, what he says there in verse 7, Paul shows a deep degree of commitment to unity in the church. Do you think it's important that we're unified? Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Now, God's Holy Spirit produces unity. The quickest way to quench the Holy Spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit of God is to be part of antagonism toward another in the body. We're to be one in Christ. That doesn't mean we can't have different opinions, but we always bring our opinions under the jurisdiction of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. The last arbiter of what is true and what God wants for our church is the Word of God mediated by the Holy Spirit. That is one thing we have to hold true to. Your elders, there are six of us now, Dan having left to go to another ministry. Do you know in the over decade of our having elders, probably close to 15 years, maybe longer now, we have never made one decision on a split vote. Part of the way in which we follow the Lord's leading is we have to be 100% on any decision we make. I hope that brings comfort to you to know that we don't rubber stamp things. We pray together. Sometimes we have almost heated debate over things, but we never carry a grudge. We know that's by design. God wants us to really hear from Him and get in line with Him. Paul shows us humanity and need for examples like Philemon to encourage him. We need these kind of examples, don't we? I love hearing stories of victory. Do you, about people who followed God in difficult times particularly? It's so emboldening, emboldening and also so encouraging. Not only was Philemon's love important, but his faith in the Lord too. Love and faith. Galatians 5, 6. You may want to jot this down. Paul writes, he said, to the Galatian church. He says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. In other words, outward ritual means nothing. But love through faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whatever is not of faith is sin, is what the Bible says. And so we, as we finish this morning, we need to understand that if we're going to be a church that's a church built on love, it has to be a church built on faith. Trusting in the Lord with all our heart. Leaning not on our understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make our paths straight. The fellowship they had was incredible. I wish I had time. I could 
talk till kingdom come, probably. But I won't. But the fellowship was so encouraging. And the long and short of what fellowship is, it's a sharing of life with one another. This is one of the things we believe small groups meeting in homes will allow us a more sharing of life and a less formal atmosphere with the same elements that we have here in our worship. We are filled with Christ when we empty ourselves in self-giving. May God grant that this church will turn a corner in its history and be committed above all else to be filled with Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the day you've given us to worship you. It's been so pleasant for us. We pray for others who might be here. We pray between now and next week, we'd be moved by your Spirit to share Christ with others. And that others would be drawn to you because of our witness in the way in which we treat one another, but also in the way we treat them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be sure...